0: Turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. We'll be in chapter 8 today and many other places, but this is going to be the base that we're working off of. And verse 10 is what I just want you to take a look at right now as we embark on today's sermon. Verse 10 says, Then he said to me, Go uh, to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah 8.10, and the statement that the joy of the Lord is your strength, needs some background. Uh, There is a lot going on in this passage that... If you don't know the broader context, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It sounds good, but when you are able to understand the background, it really makes much more sense and it's much more exciting. So I want to give just a little bit of background before we get into the outline of the sermon. And before I do that, let's just ask God's blessing upon our time together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we are cognizant of the fact that it is your word, and Lord, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to break open this word, to understand the text. Lord, that you would help us that our hearts would be open to receive that which the Holy Spirit has for each one of us individually today from this text of Scripture. And Lord, we're going to thank you in advance for answering those prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, even as the psalmist in Psalm 35 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There is joy that is available to Christians, to believers to those who are God's children. It's a subtle but many times proven thing that when severe suffering and affliction befall the saint's life, the believer's life, the promise of God becomes a lifeline and the hope that sustains. And it's that joy that really will come in the morning. We believe joy will come in the morning, that affliction and suffering is only for a season. When the long night of the soul is over, God's children look for that joy that comes after the storm. I think of Daniel at the end of the captivity, looking for the close of that captivity. Why? Because he knew God's word. And he had counted down the years, and he said, it's got to be soon. Are we there or what? As we look around, it's got to be soon. Things are happening on a global scale like it has never, ever happened in the history of the world. These are exciting days, and we need to be looking for the joy. Such was the case with the Jews in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And Ezra had returned from Babylonian captivity about 13 years prior to the time disclosed in Nehemiah 8. And they'd been very busy rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Ezra's life had been consumed in getting the second temple rebuilt in Jerusalem after it was devastated by the Babylonians and they had been carried off into a 70-year captivity. And when Nehemiah came to the city from the captivity, he hit Jerusalem like a tornado. And I probably shouldn't have used that term today, but he did. He was a whirlwind. And he was the governor. It was under the leadership of Nehemiah that the Jews were able to rebuild the walls around the city in just 52 days. You can see that in Nehemiah 6.15. 52 days, and they completed the walls around the city. Uh, If any of you are fortunate enough to have an ESV study Bible and you go to Nehemiah, you can see some very interesting pictures and depictions of the city of Jerusalem at that time and just where the temple was and where each of the gates were, and you see that wall around that city. Now stop and consider for a minute what these people that are being addressed in chapter 8 had already endured. Not only was the, uh, were they the first people to return to the holy city from Babylonian captivity 13 years prior. But they had been laboriously rebuilding the city and the walls that fortified it. Now, Ezra disclosed that he has the book of the law. Now, I don't pretend to understand why he didn't bring it out earlier. I have no idea. He is a priest. But he tells them that he has the book of the law. And all the people request that Ezra read it to them. They were ready. Because even though the walls of the city had been rebuilt, the only real security the people could actually rely upon would come from their undying commitment to the law of Moses and their trust in Yahweh with their obedience to his ways. Long forgotten, the book of the law combined with the previous 13 years of physical labor, and the people were hungry for God's word. Maybe, maybe there needs to be a severe drought or severe suffering before that hunger springs in the hearts of God's people. Maybe we're experiencing something like that right now. They had faced untold disputes with enemy neighbors and they, as they rebuilt the temple and the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and all of that did provide an ideal setting uh, for the law to be revealed at this point in time. But now, in God's perfect time, after Nehemiah had literally finished the restoration of the city with the completion of the walls, the people gathered as one man. Look at verse 8, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man. There was unity there at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. So they all gathered together, and they wanted to hear God's law. The law of Moses would have referred to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Ezra, being a priest, had the authority to read and teach the law. Deuteronomy 33.10 explains that Moses expressed God's word to the Levites when he said, they will teach your ordinances to Jacob, meaning Israel, and your law to Israel. So the priests had the responsibility not just to read, but to teach them. This is really important to the text that we're involved with today. So let's continue reading chapter 8. Read chapter 8, verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. Then Ezra, after he was asked, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. The audience was comprised of everyone. Everyone was there. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were listening with rapt attention for hours to the reading and the teaching of God's word. Verse four, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium. Isn't that great? He had a podium that they made for him specifically to teach God's word. This podium I asked for, when we bought this building, they asked me what kind of podium I would like, and I told them, and they helped me to get this podium. I've had fellow preachers come to visit and preach here, and they said, man, I love your, I love your pulpit. I can put my Bible here, got my books here. There's no clock. There's a clock here, but it doesn't work. I've been threatened to have a, like a digital clock right there in red letters, but nah, we don't want to do that. But they built him a podium. I just love that. He stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Ania, Uriah, Hilka, Masela, and on his right hand, Pedela, the guys, they're all together. It'd be like if I, I was up here preaching and I had the deacons here and the other elders right there as he preached. Amazing. Solidarity, authority coming forth. And verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all and the people, and he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, this is where uh, you'll see in pictures of pulpits uh, over in Europe and a lot of the churches in Europe that the men would actually walk up a set of stairs and get into the pulpit. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of evangelical churches think, well, that, that shouldn't be, you know, the pastor should be right down on level with the people. And that's fine. I understand that. Um, I'm up here so that you can see me. If I was there, half of you wouldn't be able to see me. I'm not that tall. But it's also to just, it's respecting the word of God. He's holding forth the word of God. And so it's not so much the man, it's the word of God. Verse 6, And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, Joshua. said, Bani, Shurabiya, Jamin, Akub, and the rest. They all explained the law to the people. Did you catch that? They all explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Well, there's so much in this. There's so very, very much in this. They taught the law. Notice, not only were the people intentional in requesting the word, but they were also attentive to the reading of the word. And they actively engaged. Amen and amen. They were tracking. Uh, just recently, there's a, a young girl that began taking notes um, in the service. And I got a chance to look through those notes And it's so interesting. I'm familiar with the sermon that I was preaching that she was taking notes from, but I could track her young note-taking. I could track where I was in the sermon, where it clicked and she wrote down notes. Engaged. Engaged. I highly suggest you take notes. Get a sermon notebook and just come prepared and take notes. It helps you to engage in the sermon. And it's for your own good. It's for what you can get out of it. And they were humbled, bowing to the ground. And they also acknowledged what they heard. The word was exposited, and they understood the word. Now, I just want to give a little thought to verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This verse clearly shows that it's not just the reading of the law that was important, but also explaining it so that there is no confusion by the hearers as to its meaning. One commentator mentioned uh, that the Babylonian exile, the captivity that they had been taken away to, sounded a death knell to the Hebrew language because they had to learn Aramaic. They had to speak a different language. I remember the Indonesians, when I lived over in Indonesia, they told about the Japanese coming in during World War II and invading Borneo. That's the island where I studied language when we first went over there. And they said they they walked with canes, and you had to speak their language. You could not speak any other language but Japanese. And if they caught you speaking another language, they'd just whip you with a cane. Amazing, right? Dominance. The educated classes were deported to Babylon, or they fled to Egypt, and those who remained were not slow to adopt the language used by their conquerors. And the old Hebrew language then became a literary and a sacred tongue, kind of like Latin in the, in the Catholic Church. You remember, um, if you're of any age and you have any experience with, with the Catholic Church, I remember growing up, I went to a parochial school and and the Mass was said in Latin. We didn't understand a word. Kind of like many Muslims today that chant in a language that they do not even understand. And they listen to the singing of an imam in a language that they don't even understand. Well, the language of everyday life was Aramaic. Whatever may be the exact meaning of Nehemiah 8 8, this commentator says, it proves that the people of that time had extreme difficulty in understanding classical Hebrew when it was read to them. And yet, for the purpose of religion, the old language continued to be employed for several centuries. So I'm just talking about verse 8 here, where they gave sense to what they were reading so that the people could understand. A lot of that may have been just translating it from Hebrew into Aramaic so that they could understand. Now, it was, Nehemiah took place around the 400s or so of BC, and it wasn't until 285 to 247 that they dropped the Hebrew Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. It was basically their, their Bible. They dropped that Bible into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. There are 70 translators that did that. But that was 200 years later, after Nehemiah here. Nehemiah 8.8 sees this tradition carried on where they taught the scriptures to the people. In Luke 24.32, we see Jesus doing this very thing. Do you remember that? That's when he was resurrected, and he was walking on the road to Emmaus with two, two disciples. And in verse 32, it shows Jesus carrying on this tradition. Um, They're talking with one another, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures? While he was explaining the scriptures. And what scriptures was he explaining? In verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained To them, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow! Would I have loved to have been walking with them. Right? He started in Moses and went all the way from the five books of Moses into the prophets and explained how he was everywhere present, the Messiah. Now, the first instance in verse 27 is a Greek word. That means to expound, to explain, to interpret. In fact, it's directly related to a verb, hermoneo. Hermoneo, does it sound like anything you know? Hermeneutics? That's where we get our English word hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation of the word of God. That's what Jesus was doing. He was explaining them to him. Now, the second instance in verse 32 is a different Greek word, and this word means to open up, to open the eyes, to cause to understand, to expound, to exposit the scriptures. Both instances emphasize the importance of expositional preaching. And that's why here at Beacon of Hope we're dedicated to that. This is what we do here. And we, we try hard to help you to understand the scriptures that are before us. So with that background, uh, in just these few verses, uh, I'd like to read verses 9 through 12 and, and get to the sermon for today. Verse 9, Then Nehemiah, who was governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11. So the Levites called all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy Do not be grieved. How many times is he going to say this? How many times is God going to tell his people, Do not be grieved? Reminds me of uh, Jesus toward the latter part of his ministry saying, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think we're a very fearful people. Do not be grieved. Verse 12. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. It's really an interesting juxtaposition between grief and joy, all the way through that text. Grief and joy, grief and joy. So in these few verses, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see, um, as we consider Advent, that there's a joy that is outside of this world. It's out of this world, if you want to say it like that. And that joy brings strength to God's people. Strength. Thirdly, we'll notice that joy remains in the midst of grief. uh, Grief does not cancel out joy at all. And finally, I just want to talk about this Christmas season is a season of great joy. Great joy. So... As we get to this, let's look at joy that is out of this world. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a joy that comes from the Lord to start with. It's the joy of the Lord. Its source is the Lord. The Hebrew word simply means gladness or rejoicing. It's not real heavy theological content. It basically is... uh, Remind, uh, reminiscent of David in Psalm 21 where he, he speaks about what makes a king glad. And he says in verse 7, You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. In your presence. It's the joy of the Lord. But ever since the fall of man, since sin entered into the world, the quest for enjoyment and gladness and rejoicing has been blocked as if a quilt of sin has been thrown over the earth. It really has. It's called the curse. And the blanket of sin leads people to seek satisfaction in sensual pleasures like food and wealth and all kinds of fleshly appetites that they have. But there is no satisfaction to be found under the curse, under the blanket. You can't find it. It's elusive completely. Such a hunt is like trying to take the the wind in to stave off physical hunger. How would that work? We're trying to hold water in your hand. That's what seeking joy outside of God is like. The pleasures or joys of the world can't satisfy an eternal soul. I, I was really blessed listening to news over the week this week because Being instituted is a new word. The newscasters are starting to use soul. Those souls that were lost in the tornadoes. I've heard that. This is like new. And I like it. Because those that are secular, those who are atheists, do not believe that men have a soul. Psychology does not believe that men have a soul. This is good news. We have within us an appetite that cannot be satisfied by things in this world. Whatever they may be, they always fall far short. Why do these uber-rich people commit suicide? They have everything we all want. (laughs) Plus, right? But why do they commit suicide? Because they realize nothing satisfies. But the one who placed Those appetites within our heart, he's placed eternity in our hearts, it says in Ecclesiastes, also provides a way to quench them completely. He wouldn't just give us uh, an appetite and not provide a way to quench that appetite. God has provided a joy that is out of this world. It's a joy that has its source in him alone, the joy of the Lord. It springs from him and it is in him. Psalm 1611 sums it up pretty succinctly where it says, quote, in your presence is fullness of joy. How clear do we need to have it? In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Jeremiah tells God's people that God's word, which is merely his self-revelation to mankind, in God's word... Joy and rejoicing are discovered. Quote, your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. See that in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. The Psalmist says in Psalm nineteen eight, the precepts, another word for the word, the precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. And in Psalm 119, 162, we read, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Presence of the Lord, the word of God. It's the word of God that brings joy to the heart, the regenerate heart. Well, now there he goes again, talking about regenerate heart and regeneration and born again and yep, yep, I am. I'm going there. Because if it is the joy of the Lord, sinners who are separate from God, and actually enemies of him, need to be reconciled. They have to come back together with the God who created them, or they will never experience this joy. Back to the garden and the fall of mankind and sin. So that death passed unto all men because all have sinned. We are not sinners because we have sinned. Do you know that? We are not sinners because we have sinned. We sin because we are sinners. And that's not just double talk. Go back and listen to it on the tape. All of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, it stands to reason that every sinner is, in fact, an enemy of God. Romans 8 tells us that. It says this, For the mind set on the flesh, that would be somebody that's not regenerate, somebody that's living just as a physical person where their spirit is dead and trespasses and sins, okay? It says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So when your boss rails against you because you have a Christmas tree on your desk and he thinks that that is biased towards Christianity, don't get upset. What more do you expect? When you say, Merry Christmas, and somebody answers you back, Happy Holidays, because they want to teach you, especially in Minnesota, right? Land of teachers. (laughs) I digress. Don't get upset, okay? Because that's where their hearts are at. They have no capacity. They are hostile towards God. And thank God that it's not worse. It's not worse, right? For it does not subject itself to the law of God. That, that heart of flesh, that, that, that fleshly one, doesn't subject themselves to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. They're incapable of doing that. That's Romans 8, 7. Therefore, if there's ever to be a chance of experiencing this joy that is out of this world, there is going to have to be a reconciliation between God and the sinner. Well, I'm so grateful for the Bible because in Romans 5.10, there's a definitive explanation of how reconciliation takes place. Listen to this, quote, For when we were enemies, right, separate from God, when we were hostile towards him, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Again, do I need to explain that? How much explanation more can I give than just the verse itself? For when we were enemies, separate from God, we were brought back together, reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And the next verse shows us the joy of the Lord comes. It says, and not only that, but we also rejoice. So when you're reconciled, then you rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received what? The reconciliation. If joy is found in his presence, reconciliation is necessary, right? Very simply. So truly the only joy that will satisfy an eternal soul is the Joy that comes from outside this world, the divine joy that has its source and content in Yahweh, the joy of Yahweh, the joy of the Lord. Now, secondly, not only do we experience this joy, but that joy brings strength. It brings strength. What kind of strength? The verse says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. What kind of strength? Comes through joy. Well, the word strength in Nehemiah uh, 8.10 is a word that signifies safety, protection, and refuge. It, it's indicative of a stronghold, and it's used like that. I'll, I'll, I'll quote a couple of verses so you see it in use. It's a stronghold or a fortified place where there's a defense, there's safety. Consider these passages. Okay, 2 Samuel 22.33 says, God is my strength and power. God is my strength and power. Psalm 31.3 says, You are my rock and my fortress. Isn't it interesting how these words just pop out? Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. In the day of trouble. Psalm 27.1, The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? Of whom shall I fear? Right? And in Isaiah 25 and uh, Jeremiah sixteen nineteen, they kind of combine uh, all the nuances of the word. It's very interesting. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm and a shade from the heat. That's worth memorizing. That's worth memorizing. Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in a day of distress. Beloved, it doesn't matter what befalls you. I don't care what happens in your life. You can experience the joy of Yahweh in the midst of that grief, in the midst of whatever suffering you're experiencing, in the midst of whatever affliction has befallen you. So the idea of strength here we see is not so much might and strength in that sense, but it's more security. It's more security. I kind of go back to my shalom, that peace, that sense of well-being, right? Strength. So how does joy bring strength? Well, remember, it's the joy of the Lord. So the people of God are close to the Lord, and they'll obviously be filled with joy when they're walking closely with him, right? It's the presence of God which brings the joy. The joy of the Lord is experienced by the individual, and it indicates that that individual that is experiencing the joy of the Lord is strong in their spiritual life. They're walking moment by moment with him, right? It's as though they walk on the sun-filled side of the street, bathed in the warmth of the sun. But let them cross over into the side of the street where the sun is blocked, And it's chilly there. Same street. So the believer who walks in the sunlit warmth of God is warm himself and he's strong. Like a rushing torrent of a stream in winter. Just think of this here. We live in Minnesota. You can understand this. It can't be frozen over because it's so energetic and, and rushing but the lazy stream or the stagnant pool is easily gripped by the cold and shortly it has a film of ice over it and pretty soon it freezes over, right? Now here in Minnesota, it gets so cold that waterfalls freeze. So I don't know where this illustration goes. It just doesn't work in Minnesota. (laughs) Can't take anything to its furthest extent, right? The believer who walks close with God, obeying his command, loving his word, longing to please him, in all they do, will always be warmed with the joy of his presence and is therefore spiritually strong, spiritually secure, spiritually safe. Psalm 27.1, I said, The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or we could say, Of what shall I be afraid? When we walk in the joy of the lord it's indicative of being filled with the spirit because it's a fruit of the spirit and we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh if we walk in the spirit that i mean galatians 526 says as much but i say walk galatians 516 it is Correct that, 5.16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You know what that means? Is that there's a powerful strength that the child of God possesses that both radiates joy, he'll exhibit joy because he's filled with the Spirit, but also he exhibits great strength against temptation. There's security against temptation. The joy of the Lord is inextricably linked with strength, security, safety, and refuge that the child of God needs as they walk through this life because temptation is everywhere. I hate checkout counters at the supermarket. I mean, I need shields on my eyes going through good grief or watching a football game. Boom! Commercial comes up. Okay, kids, turn your eyes. It's getting worse. Over in Europe, full frontal nudity, all over television. It's just, it's just blatant. Don't watch TV in Europe. I don't at all. It's coming. It's coming. It's everywhere present, isn't it? So we see that that strength, the joy of the Lord, linked with strength and security and safety, that strength comes through the joy of the Lord and it's a joy in the face of grief. I talked about that. I prayed about it during our, our time of uh, prayer. Jeremiah 8 9 says, Then Nehemiah, who was a governor in Ezra, the priests and the scribes and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? Because all the people were weeping. Why? Because they heard the word of God, the law read to them, and they realized how far short they were falling. That's what the word of God does to us, okay? The people's first response was that they listened to the word of God and they came under incredible conviction. So much so that Nehemiah stepped up and encouraged the people, to stop mourning, to stop weeping, because the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And the very first response of the word of God in true worship is that it brings conviction to the heart. Don't flee. Don't run away from that. Continue to walk with God in the face of that conviction because it identifies where we're not living in accordance with the clearly revealed will of God. And this is right And we need this. Imagine, if you can, the situation of these Jews who had come out of a foreign captivity speaking a language that was not their own and still remembering what it was like to be in captivity, having the word, to have the word of God translated and opened up to them so they could understand they were Jews, they are God's people, the apple of his eye. Only to discover how distant they had become to Yahweh's direction for their lives. They were in deep grief over their sin and neglect of God. I don't think they were expecting that when they as one man got together and asked the priest to read the law to them. I think they were probably expecting like what some people expect when they come to church, bless me, bless me. I remember when I first got saved, we sang a song, Make Me a Blessing. I thought that was me asking God to make blessings for me. (laughs) Nobody had exposited the song to me, right? No, it means make me a blessing to others, not God, my genie. Bless me, bless me, bless me. There's whole groups that follow that theology. It's called health, wealth, and prosperity. Such restraint God gives you in the pulpit. (laughs) I wanted to go there so bad. I'm not going to stop. So the prophet and the priest employed them to stand up, dust themselves off, wipe away their tears, and put aside their grief. Not their repentance, but the deep distress it had brought to them. And instead, he encouraged them to rejoice. In the face of that grief, they were to rejoice. The reading of the law reminded them why they had gone into captivity for 70 years. They were idolaters. Their idolatry had been judged by God because God punishes sin. And they were about to go into the Feast of Tabernacles where they would confess their sins. That was part of the Feast of Tabernacles. You see that in uh, chapter 8, verses 13, all the way through 937. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and they hadn't done it for a long time. But even there... As they're reciting their sins, remembering their time in the wilderness, it tells us in verse 17 that the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity had not since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that very day made booths celebrating the the Feast of Tabernacles. They would make little lean-tos with uh, little woven roofs and so forth, and they would sit under those as they celebrated the, the Feast of Tabernacles to remember that what that was like living during the days of the wilderness, okay? And they sat under them, and there was very gla- great gladness, it says in verse 17, very great gladness that they experienced, even as they were remembering what it was like to be in the wilderness. Why were they in the wilderness? Because they rejected God's offer to lead them into the land. And so they went into the wilderness for 40 years, one for each day, that the spies went out and spied the land. Amazing. You see, Yahweh does punish sin, but he also forgives sin. And therefore, there's cause to rejoice. Verse 10 of chapter 8 is now in our context. We can understand it. Even in the midst of deep grief over their sin, Nehemiah and Ezra told them, go eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions to those that have nothing prepared. For this day is a holy day to our Lord. But don't grieve. Joy breaks out right in the midst of their grief. And the joy overcomes it like a match overcomes darkness with light. In verse 11, the priest told them, Be still, for the day is holy. Don't be grieved. And we read that all the people, the whole multitude of those who had returned from captivity, did as they were told, and they celebrated with a great festival. They listened to their leaders. Why? What was the reason behind this great joy? Well, verse 12 tells us very plainly, doesn't it? At the end of verse 12, look at chapter 8, verse 12. Because they understood the words which had been made out to them. Because they understood the words they had been taught and they understood the word of God that had made it plain to them. The priests taught them. They engaged themselves and they learned what they were to learn from the law and they greatly rejoiced. Now, Christmas is is a season of great joy. And I, I just want to, this is a little bit of an encouragement for us because many will tell you, many have told me, when I preach about joyfulness and gladness and it's a season of rejoicing and celebration, hey, Pastor, don't you know people? some people really suffer during this time? Depression's never greater. I agree, I know, I know. They'll say sadness people feel on Christmas and during the holidays is is great. I I know there are those. And then they'll tell you how we ought to be sensitive to those feelings and not let our mirth get out of control. Don't be so exuberant in your joy. Hogwash. No. Don't dampen my joy. If God can give joy in the face of grief, there's something wrong here, right? Right? I'm not denying the grief and the suffering and the sadness that some feel. They say not everybody enjoys Christmas. Why not? Not everybody celebrates and rejoices the way that you do. My consideration regarding such sentiments, fully admitting that there are such ones who are overly grieved at this great celebration when we commemorate the Savior of the world's birth. And I'd say this maybe, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then I might follow it up by saying, do you know the joy of the presence of the Lord in your life? And then I might add another question, have you experienced reconciliation between yourself and God? Tell me about that. Or if not, let me explain how that takes place. And I might say, do you know the amazing experience of having all your sins forgiven by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn it around to his glory, to the good news that we're celebrating. Or or could it be that there is release from captivity of sin and you're still hell-bound in your trespasses and sins? Maybe you haven't experienced that release yet, You can, you know. One of the verses that celebrates this day we call Christmas is found in Isaiah 61. I read it to you. To those who are grieving and not rejoicing in the season of joy, listen to God's word and understand. The servant of the Lord, his Messiah, is speaking. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To do what? To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Sin brings a person into captivity. The word for captivity in the Hebrew means to be carried away or to be brought under control and domination of another. It means to be subjugated and and to bring dominion over another person. This is exactly what the New Testament preaches us that sin does. And it tells us clearly in Galatians 3.22. But the Scriptures declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. It's the NIV's translation of that. The whole world is a prisoner of sin of sin. Some translators have said scripture has shut up all men unto sin. That's kind of archaic, but what it means is that they're locked securely, surrounded on all sides, preventing any escape. And it's a a universal captivity because it says the whole world the whole world, you're back to all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God right? You see, when you meet someone that is not Experiencing the joy of Christmas, there's something wrong. There's a disconnect there. And you can enter into their lives because you can ask them maybe you're not free. Maybe you haven't experienced that release. But you can. Always add that last part. But you can. John eight thirty four says, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave of sin. Relentless, no matter the personal resolve, the slavery of sin is real, and we sin over and over and over. It's a horrible thing. And the implication is clear that you are not free. You're not free. Now, believers do sin, but we're free. We're forgiven. Those don't have reconciliation yet, are not free, they can't do anything but sin. So just questioning the person in all sincerity with love, asking, are you free? You can be, you can be. And so a very real possibility behind the reason for sadness during this season is not past experiences that were bad, like growing up in a home. I had one one person share with me that As she was growing up in her home, her father used to just get, he went crazy at Christmas time, right? But they didn't have the money to go crazy. And so he ran them into such debt to get all the kids' presents and make it all festive and everything that it took him six months to pay off those bills. And it was a source of constant irritation in the marriage of her mom and dad. But her dad just consistently did that. He couldn't help himself. And so Christmas time was not real joyful because it always brought back those memories. Put those memories to death by the power of the Spirit of God. Be free. Sin is tyranny and it's bondage, but you can be free from it right now, right here, right today. You can make that transaction and be free. Be released from that captivity. Captives, listen up. That's taken from Taliabo. Yagamine aliomai. means listen to the words I'm going, going to say right now. Listen. Because there is promise of release in Isaiah 61, God sent Messiah to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And in Jesus' own words, as he identified himself as the one to do that, he's quoted as saying this in Luke 4, 18. He says, he, God, has sent me, Jesus, to proclaim release to the captives, sinners, and recovery of sight to the blind, sinners, to set free those who are oppressed, sinners who aren't regenerate. He is the Savior. Release in Hebrew is the same word translated forgiveness in many other places in the New Testament. And as Christ was lifted up onto the cross, he'll lift you up on from the bondage of slavery and sin. And and he was sent to release the captives and the prisoners and set them free. And the angels who appeared to the shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus told them that they brought good news of great joy, which will be for all people. It's a universal call. Everyone can be free. Not everyone will, but everyone is able to be free. His death paid for the sins of the world. And those that take advantage of that will be forgiven. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christmas is a season of great joy for everyone. For those that don't know it yet, it's great joy because you can tell them of the freedom from captivity of their sin. And bring joy to their lives. For us who have been forgiven, it's a season of great joy because we remember our Savior was born. And we rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice in the Lord and let the joy of the Lord be your strength this Christmas. Will you? Will you let the joy of the Lord be your strength this Christmas? End of message. Let's pray. Father God, joy is something we all long for in the depths of our heart. Some of us experience it only intermittently because though we be the children of God, we somehow or other get confused and walk on that side of the street that's in the shade. And it's difficult when, though we're forgiven our sins, we walk in some sins. And, Father, that joy seems to evaporate and conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment comes back upon us. But Thank you that in that fullness of forgiveness we can remember that Jesus died for us and we can get back on the sunny side of the street and the warmth and the strength that is present there. Oh, God. If there's anyone here today that does not know the release from the captivity of sin, please work in their hearts and help them to understand that and how to do that. And Father, may we all experience the joy of the Lord, which is our strength this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.